Welcome to Pediatric Meltdown, the podcast about children's mental health and emotional well-being. I'm Dr. Leah Gugino, a primary care pediatrician, and I created this podcast for the pediatric medical community and anyone who cares about children's behavioral health. Pediatric Meltdown offers thoughtful conversations featuring experts from the field. Learn practical strategies from the best and become a savvier clinician. My guest today is Dr. Stephanie Nelson, and this is just a really awesome episode. She explains so many things in such practical ways about neuropsychology and how those assessments are helpful to us. So I hope that you will listen carefully. Dr. Stephanie Nelson is a pediatric neuropsychologist who specializes in complex differential diagnosis. She is board certified in both clinical neuropsychology and pediatric neuropsychology. Dr. Nelson earned her undergraduate degree at Williams College and her doctorate in clinical psychology at the University of Vermont. She completed her internship and postdoc fellowship in pediatric neuropsychology at the University of Minnesota Medical Center. After a few years in group practice in the Boston area, Dr. Nelson returned home to the Pacific Northwest and opened her own practice. She is currently the director of Skylight Neuropsychology in Seattle, Washington. Her day-to-day work involves comprehensive neuropsychological assessments and outreach to the community through presentations, workshops, and volunteer work. She also spends half her time providing consultation to psychologists and neuropsychologists who specialize in pediatric assessment. Again, her information today is really invaluable, so please listen carefully. Today, I have Dr. Stephanie Nelson with me, and I'm so excited for you to be here, um, hailing from Seattle. Thanks so much, and uh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me on. I'm excited for this conversation. I had a podcast just prior to this one with Dr. Chris Barnes, who introduced you and I, and he talked a little bit about psychological assessments, and I I'm just kind of diving into that a little bit deeper with you, particularly focusing on some nuances about learning disabilities. So I just wanted to start out with you're a neuropsychologist, and what was your journey to getting there? Oh, what a great question. So I'm, as a pediatric neuropsychologist, that means I did psychology first and then added on the neuropsychology afterwards. Like most of us professionals, that was not my plan. My plan was to become a teacher. I was going to be a (laughs) elementary school teacher. All the women in my family are elementary school teachers. So growing up, I just thought that's what you did as an adult. So that was my plan. And then somewhere in college, I decided I wanted to teach at the university level, which requires a PhD. And so I was going to become a university level psychology professor. And then to survive as a, as a graduate student, to be able to pay my rent and things like that, I started doing assessment on the side and just fell in love with it. And so just figuring out kids' strengths and needs and how to empower them just became a passion. And so after graduate school, did a two-year postdoctoral fellowship in pediatric neuropsychology and have been doing assessment ever since. Well, I'm so grateful for all the neuropsychologists out there because sometimes you're few and far between. So 
That's true. Why don't you describe a little bit for listeners the difference between being a clinical psychologist and a neuropsychologist? So when would we want to refer to one or the other? That's a great question. So any psychologist can do assessment. They can do, look, look for learning disabilities, for example. Some psychologists do more assessment than others. Lots of psychologists just do therapy. Some of them also do assessment. Neuropsychologists generally specialize in assessment. And to become a neuropsychologist, they do that internship and then two-year fellowship specifically in assessment. And most neuropsychologists have some blend of seeing children or adults with medical disorders that might affect cognition and with developmental conditions. And the The proportion will depend on the neuropsychologist. So some neuropsychologists who just work in hospitals may only see children with medical disorders like epilepsy or a traumatic brain injury or a demyelinating disease or something along those lines. And other neuropsychologists like myself, I'm in private practice. I would say 80% of my patients do not have a medical concern. They have a developmental concern like ADHD or a learning disability or autism or some other mental health condition. And so the difference in our training is that even when I'm looking at those developmental conditions, because my training is in how the brain affects behavior, I take a little bit more of a brain-based look at it. Not that I would necessarily talk about it that way with parents. Like I'm not going to be saying, oh, this seems like a frontal subcortical issue, but my training lets me know that when I see something that involves maybe movement problems, I know what the basal ganglia does and how that affects behavior. And so I know other areas to look at as I'm doing the assessment. So it's just a different lens of looking at some of the same problems that's informed by a little bit more medical and brain-based training added on to the typical psychologist training. So it sounds like there's some overlap possibly. So in talking with Dr. Barnes, you know, there's the cognitive assessment piece, Mm -hmm. which usually includes something like IQ testing Mm -hmm. and maybe achievement testing. He also included looking at mood, so maybe assessing for depression, anxiety. And it sounds like neuropsychology maybe goes one step further and does a little bit more in depth. It seems like when I've read reports, there's a lot more maybe discussion about things like memory. Mm -hmm. Are there some other things that are different about a neuropsych evaluation? Well, we use more words and write longer reports, don't we? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I think the way you described it was perfect. Neuropsychologists like to say that we're psychologists first and then neuropsychologists second. So we do those psychological pieces, definitely the mood and emotions and behavior, and then those things that get into neuropsychology, but that most psychologists feel pretty comfortable with like IQ and achievement. And then most neuropsychologists will then add on specialized training in other cognitive domains that other psychologists may not look at. You mentioned memory as one. I think compared to my psychologist colleagues, I do more testing of language, sensory motor processing, like visual perception or motor skills, 
uh, a little bit more executive functioning, direct testing. So looking at planning, organization, looking at processing skills, abstraction, those types of things in a little bit more detail. And possibly, again, this depends on the professional social cognition and adaptive functioning, like what kids can do at home. Some psychologists will also look at those things as well, but neuropsychologists almost always include that as part of their battery. So if I have a kid in front of me who is struggling in school, oftentimes the first thing that pops in people's head is, oh, this must be ADHD. Mm. How would I know whether to refer to you, a neuropsychologist, or to somebody like Dr. Barnes, a clinical psychologist? That's a great question. So if there's a medical issue at all that might be related to or causing the child's ADHD uh, or attention problems that the parent is seeing, then a neuropsychologist would be a great fit. So if you know the child has absence seizures or there's a thyroid issue or iron deficient anemia or something like that that could be causing some of the attention problems, then I would be a great fit for that. What about... For, um, Fetal alcohol. Syndrome. Yes, absolutely. So okay. any genetic condition, any exposure to teratogens in utero, we would have a lot of training in that. Even if it's just things like extreme prematurity or something happened during the, the perinatal period, a neuropsychologist would be a great fit if there's anything medical that might be going on. If it seems more environmental, trauma, stress, other types of things, or more sort of garden variety attention problems where there may not necessarily be a known causal factor, then you could refer to either a psychologist or a neuropsychologist. Generally, you're going to want to refer to someone whose work you trust and who writes reports that you can understand. And at that point, it's probably more about the specific person. There's nothing that I would be doing that Chris, for example, couldn't also do an amazing job with. I may do a little bit different type of testing or more in-depth testing, but you may not need that for that child. That is a really helpful description <laughs> of what you do. I don't know that I ever put my finger on the fact this medical overlay, that that's super helpful. Thank you for clarifying that. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about learning disabilities because that is one that's really hard. I mean, when I'm thinking about a kid that's not doing well in school, you mentioned several things that are kind of in my differential, which would be, right. um, you know, is it straightforward ADHD, which I wish because that's easy to treat and usually they do super well. Is it messy family? Is it trauma? Is it anxiety, depression? Could it be, you know, fetal alcohol just is such a hard area. And then there's this other, and, and Chris and I talked about, you know, if I'm in a classroom and they're speaking Japanese and I don't speak Japanese, I'm not going to understand what's going on. So I kind of liken that to a, a learning disability. If I don't understand, then I, I'm going to struggle. Mm -hmm. So there are different terms we come across like dyslexia, dysgraphia, dyscalculia, which is one of my favorite words to say. What do those mean and, and, and how would you assess those? 
Those are such great questions. So there's a lot to unpack there. Let's just start with sort of the basic definitions of those really long words that we may sort of mostly use to confuse parents, I think. But so we use dyslexia, dysgraphia, dyscalculia, and what we mean is problems with reading, writing, and math. So dyslexia means an, a developmental difficulty in reading. So it would be opposed to alexia, where you have like an acquired problem with reading, like you had a head injury and kind of lost the ability to read. But dyslexia means you're having trouble learning to read. You're not reading at a level that's expected for your overall level of development. And then dysgraphia and dyscalculia are the same ideas, but extended to writing and math, respectively. So dysgraphia is some sort of developmental problem with writing. Dyscalculia would be some sort of developmental problem with math. It's confusing because the school uses slightly different terms and our DSM uses slightly different terms as well. So the school tends to call it all SLD, specific learning disability, and then they may specify what category it's in. And then in the DSM, or you, you might come across this in the internet as well, we might call it disorder of reading or disorder of reading comprehension, learning disorder of math, learning disorder of written expression. And those sometimes map really easily onto those dyslexia, dysgraphia, dyscalculia. So when somebody says learning disorder of math, they pretty much always mean dyscalculia, but sometimes it gets a little bit trickier because learning disorder of written expression may or may not be what we mean by dysgraphia. So that adds a layer of confusion there. And I'm thinking about like, for example, with reading. So there's all these different steps that happen. I mean, you have to recognize like what a letter is you have to understand how a letter sounds and then how it goes together with other letters and then what those letters mean. So, and then remembering. So you've got all these different parts that can be different parts of your brain, right? Exactly. And that's part of why those categories, those definitions sometimes map onto each other well and sometimes don't. Because each of these skills is very multifactorial. There's a lot of things you need to be able to read, both from a brain-based perspective, but also from an environmental or mental health perspective. You have to have the right vocabulary and background knowledge to understand what you're reading. You have to feel comfortable and safe to even engage in the reading process. And then once you get to that point, then there's a lot of things that the brain does that are involved in reading, like you mentioned. One nice thing is that for dyslexia, at least, we have a pretty good understanding of the processes that usually are problematic for children with dyslexia. About 80% of kids with dyslexia have trouble with two different pieces of reading. They have trouble with sounding out words, knowing how those words connect together in a in a knowing how those sounds connect together in a word. So knowing that k a t makes cat or being able to break cat down into k a t that's called phonological processing. And that is something that we use every time we come across a word that we don't know, we have to sound it out or take a guess at how to spell it based on those understandings of how sounds and letters go together. 
And then we don't sound out every word that we see. Many words we just know we've seen many, many times before, or even if we did try to sound them out, it wouldn't work. So of is a good example, spelled O-F. If you try to sound out the F, you'll end up with something that doesn't sound like of. So those high frequency or sight words that we just have to memorize, we use a process to pull those up that's called rapid naming. You rapidly name what you see. And good fluent readers are able to do both. They're able to use their phonological skills to sound out any word they've never seen before. And they're able to use that rapid naming to pull up words that they should know. Kids with dyslexia usually have trouble with both of those things. And that makes every word hard. They can't sound it out and they can't pull it up from their memory banks quick enough to be able to use it and recognize it in the sentence. And so then they're challenged by every single word that they're uh, reading. As you can imagine, that comes with a lot of downstream consequences for things like comprehension and retention of what you've read as well. That was just going to be my next question. So let's say that I can sound words out and I have a pretty good, you know, sight word vocabulary, but when it comes to answering questions about what I just read, so comprehending what it says, what then? What does that mean? Right. So if your, either your phonological processing or your rapid naming, if they're a little bit weak, that could then affect comprehension because you're using up so much of your mental energy just to do those two pieces. But if those skills really are very strong and you're able to sound out or say every word that you come across, but you're still having trouble comprehending, then we wouldn't necessarily call that dyslexia. We would probably say that that's a reading disorder or it's a consequence of another concern. So for example, if you have a language disorder, you may be able to read the words, but not completely understand them. So for example, you use the example of Japanese, which I love. I often talk with families about, think about whatever language you took in high school. I took French. I can sound out a word in French, but that doesn't mean I can understand the sentence. So I'm not dyslexic in French, but I, if I was in France, I, it would be very hard for me to understand what I was reading. And we might call that like a language disorder. You that might also really, that's really helpful. I, I took German in college. I spent a summer in Germany and I got pretty good. I'm certainly mm-hmm. not fluent, but you know, I haven't used German in like a bazillion years. So I was going through some stuff in my attic and came across a journal I wrote and I wrote it in German. Wow. I can pronounce everything in it. Mm-hmm. I have no idea what I wrote. I'm hoping right. that maybe it's in my brain somewhere, but I have no clue what it says. Right. And you know that there are words that you know. You're like, I, I, I think I recognize this word, but the meaning is very hard to access in those yeah. moments. Well, that's and, really helpful understanding the difference between the dyslexia and a reading disorder, because then it 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 it's different what the intervention is, right? Exactly. So with classic dyslexia, we're going to teach you phonics and we're going to help you with that rapid naming piece. But if those skills, you already have them, then we're going to focus on more of the meaning and more of the making connections and having the vocabulary and background knowledge that you might need to understand. And I've sometimes come across, and I, maybe this isn't true, but 
that the school is like, well, we don't do dyslexia. We don't teach that. Is that true or do I have that wrong? It's it's very confusing. And this is probably the top question that we get from parents and pediatricians is who helps with dyslexia? Who can diagnose dyslexia? When schools assess kids, they're asking a different question than I am. I'm asking the question, does this child have dyslexia? And if so, what do they need to benefit and make progress? The school is asking, does this child need special education services? They actually cannot make a diagnosis of dyslexia. They can determine that a child qualifies for special education services and may need reading services, but they often they often interpret that language as meaning they can't even use the word dyslexia at school. They think that that's a diagnosis and they're not making that. So they're determining, does this child need specialized education in order to access the curriculum and make grade level progress in school? And if they do determine that a child needs services, they actually then use dyslexia-based programs to help the child. They just don't call it that. Wow, that's weird. Mm -hmm. It is. (laughs) Wow, that's really confusing. So very confusing. Huh. So so do they have the services to provide then? That's a great question. So if they determine that a child needs specialized reading instruction, they usually will pull the child from class to work with a reading specialist, either during class time or maybe after or before school. It's usually in a small group format, but occasionally one-on-one. And what they typically use is a commercially available program to help students who need specialized support in reading. Since 80% of kids with reading problems have that classic dyslexia program. Most of uh, profile, most of the commercially available programs that the schools buy are for kids with dyslexia. So they don't call it that, but usually the programs that the schools use focus on phonics and focus on that rapid naming piece and then maybe focus on comprehension from there. So So what would be the name of one of those classic programs? So most of them are what's called Orton-Gillingham-based. So you may have heard parents talk to you about OG or Orton-Gillingham services. Some common ones that are used would be Wilson or the Barton system, or I think Read Naturally might be an OG-based program. So they're programs that the school buys in bulk and then the their special education staff get trained in that particular method. So this is so helpful. I could have used you about 15 years ago. (laughs) So the, the school would identify if there's difficulties. And if there was a question of dyslexia, they might not exactly say that's what it is. Right. But they're going to shoot for that because chances are that's what it is. Exactly. And then a reading specialist would actually provide those services. Correct. So they would have a special education instructor in the school setting who would be in charge of providing those services to the student. So what if it is, for example, a kid with fetal alcohol syndrome who's got some big cognitive holes and may need more than just phonics, they may need help with you know, memory sometimes a problem, maybe the comprehension piece. What do you do when it's it's more complicated? 
That's an amazing question. So when the school is determining if a child needs services, they have 13 categories that they can identify a child being in need. The most common ones that you'll hear about are specific learning disability, like dyslexia. About 33% of kids who get special education get it under that category of SLD. The next most common one that you would hear about is called other health impairment. If your child receives an IEP because they have ADHD, it's most likely under this other health impairment category. But it's where a lot of other things go. Fetal alcohol syndrome might fit under that category as well. There are other categories like emotional or behavioral disorder, hard of hearing, visually impaired, traumatic brain injury, deafblind. But most of the time, we're talking about the categories of specific learning disability or other health impairment. If a child had fetal alcohol syndrome but was not in the range of intellectually delayed, then they would probably get services under OHI. Once a school qualifies a student, they're required to find every area of need that that student has and try and meet it in some way. For a student with fetal alcohol syndrome, that might mean that in addition to being pulled out in reading, they might also be pulled out for math and writing or other subjects. They might also get occupational therapy services. They might also get uh, speech and language services, social emotional support. Sometimes the student needs so much support that they'll actually be in a specialized classroom so that those services can be provided. The schools often do not directly help with memory, but they are trying to build those skills through how they teach the curriculum by teaching it at a slower pace with more repetition, making sure the child's mastered it before moving on to a new subject, things along those lines. This is so complicated. No wonder I've had trouble reading your reports. (laughs) It is very complicated and it's so hard for parents to navigate. They often end up having to become case managers for their child. So one of the things that I'll make sure to include is a couple of websites that can help demystify this process a little bit that parents can go to or even other professionals, pediatricians, uh, that sort of thing that can help kind of sort out some of this alphabet soup and, and where to go and who to help with. What websites do you like to use? And I'll make sure to put the links in the show notes. Sure. So understood.org is a fantastic website that has information for parents, for professionals, for providers in the community, and just walks through all these things like, tell me about the difference between dyslexia and dysgraphia. Tell me about the difference between a 504 and an IEP. Who do I go to for help? So a lot of really great basic information that's laid out in a beautiful, easily accessible way. If you want more information about dyslexia specifically, the International Dyslexia Association website is really great, has a lot of this same information, but focuses specifically on dyslexia. And then if you have a lot of questions about special education, I would recommend Rights Law. That right with a W-R-I-G-H-T, it was named after a couple that are special education lawyers and they've their passion is helping parents navigate the special education system. That's really great. You know, again, this could be a whole curriculum for educators. <laughs> and, you know, when I was, I'm, you know, been doing medicine for a long time, you know, we didn't really have like a developmental behavioral curriculum. And I think more of the residents are getting that now and hopefully learning this stuff. But 
I'm going to make sure that I underline, I'm going to say it again right here, understood.org. It sounds mm-hmm. like it would be a great site for pediatricians. It's a fantastic site. And it, it, all their articles are fairly short, fairly easy to read, and yet science-based and comprehensive. So I love that. So let me just, I, again, I want to make sure I understand. So let's, for example, talk about a child with Down syndrome. And, you know, of course, kids with Down syndrome have a very wide spectrum of abilities and, and and challenges. Some kids might have very significant cognitive impairment, and then other kids are, you know, in Hollywood movies and remembering long scripts. So mm-hmm. is a neuropsychologist somebody that could help tease out what a child with Downs might need? Absolutely. So with any child, whether they have something like Down syndrome or do not, my goal is to provide families with a roadmap that says, here's what your child is great at or and areas where their skills are developing right the way they should be. Here's what needs or areas of vulnerability your child has. If that fits a specific diagnosis or a specific known medical condition, we'll talk about that. So if the child has the cognitive profile of Down syndrome, we would certainly talk about that in the report and in the feedback that we do. But parents are less interested in that and more interested in, well, how do we help those areas of need? So then the goal of my reports is to say, what do we need to follow up on medically? What could be helpful at school? What could be helpful at home? Are there any services that the child isn't getting at school that they might need? And then to connect the family to other resources and sources of support, like perhaps books or websites or support groups or their own therapy if they might need that so that families know what to do uh, as opposed to what the diagnosis is, which is interesting, but not what they want. Yeah. You know, again, I'm thinking about, I love your descriptor of a roadmap. I'm also thinking of kids that have difficulty with writing. Mm -hmm. So it can be different things. So it might be actually the production of writing, like Mm -hmm. how much can you write? Are you really slow? And it could be that they don't understand phonetics. They don't understand how to put together words. So that might be one thing. It could also be an actual um, motor issue, like the way they hold their pencil, mm-hmm. um, if they have weak muscles, so then they're slow, but they could tell you everything, you know? Um, so it's not really like a knowledge-based thing. It's an actual motor thing. Exactly. And I know my daughter was having some trouble and I don't know how I stumbled on it, but an OT just showed her a couple things about how to hold a pencil made all the difference in the world. And it changed what I could do because I would ask a kiddo to, you know, here, write your name. And then I would see that they like had this primitive, like, you know, grip of the pen. And it's like, well, no wonder this is taking you forever. So do, again, do neuropsychologists help tease that out? Absolutely. So this is why families are not as interested in the diagnosis as they are in the roadmap of what the child's strengths and weaknesses are and and what to help with. With something like with dyslexia, we have a lot of research based on that. It's a very common 
condition that children have. There's a lot of research. We know what the cognitive weaknesses are. But with something like problems in math or writing, those are really multifactorial skills. You broke down some of the processes that go into writing, right? You need to know how to read before you can effectively write. So it may be a spillover of dyslexia into writing, or it may be a motor production issue, or it could be a language issue. Writing is just language on paper. So if you have trouble with language, it's going to show up in your writing. Or it could be an executive functioning issue. If you have trouble with organization and planning and generating ideas, then writing can feel like torture because you need to do this skill that you're just learning how to do and also use all your executive functioning skills. So a lot of students with ADHD absolutely hate writing, for example, even though they don't have a problem with language or necessarily dyslexia. So while parents may may find it helpful for me to say, oh, your child has dysgraphia, what they really want to know is the specific concern. Because like you said, if it's a motor issue, perhaps some OT or a pencil grip change might be what they need. If it's a language issue, they're actually going to need to see a speech language therapist. That's a completely different specialist. So part of what I'm trying to do is tease out which of the multiple factors involved in the production problem are causing the block in the pipeline. So I wish that every kiddo entering school would have this you know, comprehensive evaluation so that we knew exactly how they learned And if there were any areas that were weak from the get-go, not that there's something bad or wrong, but just like, here's what I can do. But I know that's probably not practical. I say that to parents all the time. They often call me and say, do I need a neuropsychological evaluation? And I say, well, I do this for a living. So I think it's amazing. And I think it would be lovely if every child could have this profile of strengths and weaknesses. But that's not practical. Evaluations are often multiple thousands of dollars, a lot of investment of time and energy, insurance may or may not cover it, and the child may or may not need it. So often I'm talking with parents about, well, do you need it at that point? Is it something that the school could look at, for example, with classic dyslexia, where there's not a lot of other co-occurring problems? The school could probably do an evaluation for free, and in most cases, they're going to be recommending the right program. So I like for families to come to see me if there's a medical overlay or if you've been doing the usual treatment for dyslexia and it's not working or there's a lot of other complications. Like you're not just worried about dyslexia, you're worried about dyslexia and some ADHD and the child may be anxious or they're acting out at school. And now there's a lot of factors to tease apart. And that's when I would recommend that that families come see me if it's at all feasible for them to do. This makes so much sense. So here's the other part, and this is a maybe a cognitive function piece is how are pediatricians supposed to read these reports? <laughs> that is a great question. Help me. Help me. <laughs> So unfortunately, most of us who are psychologists were trained in academic writing. So most of our reports look like reading a journal article, right? They ha- they're 30 pages long. They're very difficult to read. There's a lot of jargon in them. We don't mean to write that way, but it's how we were all trained. 
I just gave a presentation two weeks ago trying to urge my colleagues to write in understandable language, shorter, really get to the main ideas. And when I, in lieu of being able to convince all my colleagues to write like that, when families come to me and say, I got a report from somewhere else, how do I figure out what to do with it? I have talked with them about looking for three big ideas in the report, and I call it three plus now what? So hopefully somewhere in the report, there's three things that you might be able to pull out that would be useful for the family to know about their child. So the three things might be, he's bright, he's having trouble with reading because he has dyslexia, and he has co-occurring ADHD for example. And that's enough for most families to know about. That's a lot of information to know about their child. And so now we've got the three things. And the next thing is, hopefully there's a now what section. <laughs> so I, I think Chris might have given you different advice. I'm not sure. But my like I would recommend you just go to that summary and recommend, recommendations section, read for those three things, help the family find what those are. And then there should be a numbered recommendation section and maybe help them prioritize. We often pride ourselves in the number of recommendations that we include, but that can be overwhelming for some families. So helping them say, okay, here's the three things. Here's your main couple of next steps. Three plus now what? I I love that. You've given me such practical information. (laughs) I'm not going to lie. I have gone right to the summary and recommendations many, many times. Right. And I know with like medical reports, because medical reports, you know, we write in medical terms. We use a a way of doing it that we, you know, a soap Mm -hmm. note, the way we've always been taught. Um, We use medical jargon. Um, so if a patient is looking at a medical chart, they may not have any idea what it says. Mm-hmm. So we're guilty too. But I know a lot of medical reports now are starting out with kind of what the assessment was, what the recommendations are. And then below that, they go into all the details because the history can take up a huge amount. And sometimes it's really helpful to me because there are things that you might glean from a history that I either I've known this person for a long time and I forgot about what happened when they were two. Mm -hmm. So sometimes that jogs my memory, but I know there's like all the descriptions about exactly what a test is and which I get that you have to include it, but it's a lot of words. Right. Yeah. And most of that is just our training. And so the, what I've done recently is I've actually flipped my reports, like you're talking about with medical records. And so I start with those three big pieces of information and then the now what. So I start with that kind of the summary, even I still call it the summary, even though it's at the beginning now. So the impression section and then the recommendations, and then I include the history, but only the stuff you would need to know. And then I include what the child was like during testing and the test results. But I've also taken out all that part about what the tests mean that actually it turns out nobody was reading. <laughs> so Well, and, and honestly, you know, not to be simplistic about stuff, but I want to know the mm-hmm. what, because that that's my job is the, the bullet points. And, right. you know, the pediatrician may not know all this nuance, but we need to know enough about, okay, what's that mean? And then what I see our job is, is a lot is coordinating and connecting. We're, we're the conductors. Right. Um, I might pull in all these pieces from other clinicians 
And then to work with the family, like, how can I help you sort this out? And if we're lucky enough, like I am in our practice, to have a social worker, the social worker can be that connector between me and the school. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've talked to lots of teachers and and but again, sorting this out is super complicated. And I think it we is. reduce so much of school trouble must be either bad behavior or ADHD that we might miss the boat on a lot of it. Like I'll say with families, sometimes, yeah, we're barking up the wrong tree because we didn't take into account that this could be a learning difficulty. Right. And that's often, ADHD is so common that it makes sense to start there for a lot of kids. And then if treatment isn't working at that point, partnering with other providers who can take more of a look to see what else might be going on is, is often really helpful. But as pediatricians, you're, you're busy, you're helping a lot of families, you're helping families who are stressed or may have their own learning or attention challenges. So you need to be able to give them really actionable, practical advice. And it's lovely that we've written these incredibly nuanced documents, but for families that are just like, well, what do we do next? We also need to find good ways to help get you that information so that you can help the families know what to do next. And one of the things that Dr. Barnes mentioned was it was really okay for us to call him. So, (laughs) you know, if I have a question about, I'm not sure I understand what this means, or could you distill it down a little bit more for me. He said, just pick up the phone. So is it okay if we call you? Of course. It would be wonderful if we all could talk to each other more. We're all so busy that we often don't have the time. But I think just as you would love hearing from me, I would love hearing from you and getting a a question. Another thing that Chris does that's amazing is he does like a distilled I think he get, like sends like two paragraphs to you. That's like, here's the main points of the uh, evaluation as well. So that you also have that other piece of communication. I tend to be more wordy than he is. So I send like a two page summary, but I'm trying to get the, the main points to pediatricians as well. But if there's ever any confusion, we love partnering with other providers to, to help figure out how to better understand and serve a, a child and family. Well, this has been really helpful. And, uh, you know, again, I've been doing this a long time, but you're never too old to learn new things (laughs) and to really understand like the nuances of dyslexia and language disorders. It's not the same thing. Mm -hmm. And, And the strategies for supporting a kid are very different depending on. So, you know, it's the differential diagnoses. It could be Mm -hmm. all of these things and let's try and drill it down to what, what it is and then what you can do. I love that Mm -hmm. three plus now plus what. That's great. (laughs) That's great. So any other takeaways that you have for pediatricians and other clinicians that see kids? I think it might be helpful to think about when to refer a child for an evaluation, what you might be seeing in your office. And my, my three big things there are if progress has stalled, like if the child is getting services but is not making progress, or if the child isn't getting services but seems to be really underperforming, that seems like the child is just not keeping up with his peers and not keeping up with expectations that you would have based on what else you know about his development. Or the third thing is if the child doesn't like school, school 
is has its problems, but most children, thankfully, enjoy going. They like at least seeing their friends, having recess, lunch, having teachers who care about them. So if the child doesn't like school, seems hesitant about it, seems to think that they're stupid or that learning's not for them or is avoiding or, or skipping school, that's a really good time to refer as well because that means that something about that process of learning from and with other people is not working for the child, and it would be great to help uncover what what might be going on there. And I would think one other thing might be family history. Sure. <laughs> and you, you mentioned that before, and I know I've had some families where I just, you know, unless you ask, right? Um, you know, how far did you get in school? Were there any things that were difficult for you? And, and right. I've had parents where the kids can read better than the parents can. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, trying to be sensitive to that and how, how do you best help? So Dyslexia is, is really genetic. About 60 to 70% of dyslexia we think is due to your genes. So if a child has dyslexia, there's a 40% chance that a sibling has dyslexia and there's up to a 50% chance that one of the parents has dyslexia. So looking at that family history, ADHD has similar heritability numbers as well. So getting that family history, of course, is really important. Yeah, always. I think one of the things that we learned in medicine is that most of the diagnosis is in the history. (laughs) Right, exactly. Which means we have to take time to get those histories. Mm -hmm. Listen, this has been super helpful and I will do my best um, to summarize what you've said in my out my out piece at the end of this, but I, I think some of the big takeaways is coming up with a roadmap, helping us really better understand how a kid's learning, and then breaking it down into some of those kind of chunk size pieces so that we can begin to figure out what to do next. I love the way you summarized it. I'm a big fan of the number three, obviously. So putting this into three That's pieces great. was was perfect. That's great. Well, hey, thanks so much for your time. This has been really fun and illuminating. And I know that listeners, this is going to really hit home for them. So thank you. It was such a pleasure. Thanks. Was this not just so good? I love this information and it would have helped me 20 years ago to better understand how I could help my patients. So I have a whole list of takeaways for you. Number one, a neuropsychologist goes one step farther than the clinical psychologist's and uses a brain-based lens for their evaluation. Number two, if you are looking at a cognitive concern with a medical overlay, and this was really helpful for me, for example, like seizure disorder, thyroid condition, fetal alcohol syndrome, or genetic condition, or even prematurity, a neuropsych evaluation may be really helpful. Number three, Neuropsych testing teases out cognitive domains, language, sensory motor, executive function, and social cognition, just to name a few. Number four, consider dyslexia. When you're looking at learning difficulties, dyslexia is one of the most common, and it really refers to difficulties with phonics and use of sight words and even recognition. This represents 80% of learning disorders, and it is multifactorial. Language disorders really look at the making of meaning. So that was an important distinction because the interventions are different. Number five, math and writing disorders are also multifactorial. For example, when you're thinking about writing, 
it's a cognitive process. I mean, you have to know what the letters look like and how to put letters together to make a word, to make a sentence, a paragraph, a story. And you have to know how to use a pencil properly. So to make the large muscles and the fine muscles work together and to make them, you know, create the shapes that then create the meaning. So there's lots of places where difficulties can show up. Number six, schools need to determine first if special education is needed and then what services will meet the need. So the testing that schools do is specifically to determine whether or not special education eligibility is being met. And because much of reading difficulty is due to dyslexia, even though the school can't diagnose dyslexia, which is really curious to me, they use tools that teach phonics and memorization of sight words and increasing that vocabulary. Example, the Orton-Gillingham method is widely used. So they're using those tools to try and build vocabulary and skills. Number seven, Dr. Nelson's goal is to create a roadmap of needs that meets the challenges and come up with a diagnosis that makes sense, and then what is needed to help address the needs. Her best synthesis statement ever, consolidate to three big ideas plus now plus what. For example, three big ideas from a report might be IQ deficits, learning disorders, and co-occurring ADHD. So the Now and what is will need special education, may need consultation with primary care for medication, coordination with community services, and parent psychoeducation. So that's her thoughts on how to really simplify the neuropsych eval and how it can be used. Number eight, always remember family history. For kids with dyslexia who are diagnosed, 40% of their siblings will have a learning disability, and 50% of parents will have a chance of a learning disability as well. So it's pretty significant. And nine, lastly, consider neuropsych evaluation when there is, you know, poor response to what you're trying to do. You know, you've already done some intervention, and they're just not responding how you would expect. If you are seeing a kid who's underperforming based on what their abilities are. And three, if a kid doesn't like school, keep learning disabilities in your mind as a potential cause. Thanks so much for joining me today. I hope you found this as helpful as I did. And take good care. Appreciate everything that you do for children and what you do to make a difference in the world. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pediatric Meltdown. In the words of Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Let's do better together. This podcast was made possible by the team at Streamlined Podcasts. Music was composed by Connor McHugh and cover art was designed by Alexia Barrero.